post-resurrection uh, accounts of Jesus's ministry. What did he do after he was raised from the dead uh, before he ascends to the throne? And so for the next two sermons, we're going to be in John 21. And uh, John 21 is a fascinating chapter. So as you're turning there, I'm going to just give you a brief little context for where we are because once again I'm choosing like the end of a book to preach from which is a bit difficult but it's the Gospels so we all know where we're at right now Jesus has uh, been crucified and he has been resurrected he's appeared to Mary in a garden he's appeared to the disciples except Thomas and Thomas says I'm not going to believe unless I get to touch Jesus and so Jesus is like I can arrange that so he shows up again a week later and allows Thomas to see him and Thomas believes and then the chapter of 20 of John just ends beautifully. In fact, it ends so well in John 20, 30 through 31, it's, John writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's a really great way to end a gospel, right? It's a nice little bow on it. But then we have a whole other chapter about Jesus appearing again. So scholars have debated this chapter intensely. Uh, and as usual, those who think the Bible is not the inspired word of God like to throw out theories. Well, then you know, this chapter doesn't make sense and it's not authentic and we don't have to worry about it. Uh, if you pick up a good evangelical commentary, you'll get lots of the arguments back and forth about that. Don't worry, I think it's authentic. I think it's the inspired word of God. But even if I think that, it still presents us with a bit of a challenge because it does look like John ends his whole gospel in the previous chapter, and now he kind of keeps going. It's almost like, I know you've never felt with me in a sermon, but he's just not landing the plane. He like made all the points, and he is still talking. What else is left to say? Well, it might be better if we thought about this chapter as an epilogue. You know, one of the great things about stories and movies sometimes is there's this, you know, big action scene like in Marvel's Endgame. Uh, there's a huge fight, there's a big battle between Thanos and the Avengers, and everyone's a hero and the good guys win. And the movie could end right there. But then we don't see what happens to like Captain America or the Guardians of the Galaxy or Thor, all these other characters that we have been following now for years. We, we're happy they beat the bad guys, but what comes next for them? And so in the movie, we actually get to see a funeral scene for one of the Avengers. We see Thor hitching a ride with the Guardians of the Galaxy going off to fight the next great threat. And we see Captain America retire from being Captain America. And all of these scenes help us cover questions that the audience would want to know. So it isn't not enough just to have a good ending. We want to know what happens to the characters Involved And John 21 serves that function. And he serves it really well because we'll see next week, he is the only gospel writer that allows for a complete restoration of Peter. Remember, Peter denies Christ. And in Acts 2, he's preaching, you know, the glories of the risen Savior who offers forgiveness of sins. And you're kind of like, what happened? Like, we know you had this encounter with the risen Jesus, but we get more details about Peter. And we get more details about the beloved Disciple. So this is an incredibly important chapter that kind of ties the loose ends that we might have. So all that to say, give attention to the reading of God's word from John 21, verses 1 through 14. 
After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but only about a few hundred yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you for uh, your mercies to us, and thank you for inspiring this piece of scripture that we can learn what it is like to be pursued by you, to be guided by you, and to continue to be served by you. May this sermon, Lord, uh, magnify the word of God. May it glorify the Son of God, and may it edify the people of God. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So I was always taught that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I'm sure all of you have probably heard that. When I was a groggy teenager and I'd get up like, you know, just in the nick of time to get to school, I wouldn't necessarily be hungry, but my mom would insist, you know, have a bowl of cereal or a Pop-Tart or something because it's the most important meal of the day. And some of us work hard and are on the go and we're busy. And so, you know, cup, breakfast may just be a cup of coffee and a banana or a granola bar. And so while that's better than nothing, it isn't necessarily super helpful. Most nutritionists and doctors agree that breakfast really is a very important meal. It gives you an energy boost to take on the day's tasks. It uh, can make you sharper and more prepared for your day. It, for weight gain, it boosts metabolism and gets the engine running so that you can burn off more food and not you know, gain lovely weight or anything like that. But breakfast, like so many other meals, can be healing. A husband wakes up on the couch, full of regret and still a little angry about the fight him and his wife got into the night before. His first thoughts are still to that night, but they're interrupted by the smell of bacon and eggs and coffee. And in comes his wife to the living room telling him breakfast is ready. She isn't chipper, she's probably not joyful, but she isn't cold. So they sit together with their three kids and try to enjoy a family breakfast, the kids usually oblivious that mom and dad maybe were upset with each other. 
and then they have to scamper off to get ready for school. And as he's eating and tasting the food prepared for him, he tastes and recognizes grace and forgiveness in what he's eating. He tastes and sees his wife's love for him. And so she reaches her hand across and takes his hand, and they smile and they begin to communicate, not argue, not bicker with one another, but now have a means, a setting that provides grace for them to have a relationship restored. Meals have that sort of power. That is why Jesus is constantly eating with people. He is accused of being a glutton. Jesus liked to eat. But it wasn't just because he was, you know, a food snob. It's that meals break down barriers. They humble us. They take down, you know, pretenses and airs and let's, allows us to actually talk to people. That's what's the power of hospitality, and it's why it's such an important uh, means of grace in the Gospels. So here we see that this meal, this breakfast, is not just an ordinary breakfast. We see that Jesus is the God who feeds us, and we see him do three things in this story. We see him pursue, guide, and serve the disciples, and in, in kind, he pursues, guides, and serves us. So let us look at how the God who loves us pursues us. Look at verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. That's repeated three times, twice in the beginning, and once as a really nice ending to the story. It says that Jesus had, had revealed himself again. So we see that they are not seeking Jesus, but he's seeking them. And this is so true, what we know about Jesus before us. He's going out and do, you know, starting his ministry. He comes upon the disciples and he just says, follow me. He didn't choose like really great guys. I mean, when you think about it, he chooses men to be his most intimate friends, his most intimate disciples. And being both God and man, he knows they're going to abandon him. Would you pick friends? That was loud. Would you pick friends? that you knew would abandon you, that you knew when you were at your lowest would leave you, I would assume you probably wouldn't. But what we see with Jesus is his constant pursuit of those who are not great, of those who, you know, the world doesn't think much of. And we see him again pursue them by this constant revealing after the resurrection. And this is one of the things that makes Christianity different from a lot of other religions. We are one of the only religions that teaches that God has actually pursued us. One of the things that you'll hear sometimes is, you know, all paths can lead to God. Why is Christianity so exclusive? First of all, anyone who says that has never, ever had a conversation with a devout Muslim, who I think would say that Allah has a pretty, you know, exclusive claim about who's going to be in paradise. Probably Muslims and not Christians. But anyways, a lot of people, for the sake of being spiritual and not religious or being tolerant, will say things like, why is it? Why can't all religions just be a path? And each path is leading you up a mountain to where God is. And so some people end up taking a Christian path or a Jewish path or a Muslim path or a Hindu or whatever it might be. And that's kind of works maybe for 
you know, some people, if they think that it's our job to, you know, ascend and do these great things to get to this omniscient being who wants nothing to do with us and demands that we do everything to get to him. But John's gospel begins with, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are the only religion that says the God who created all things, who loved the world so much, sent his son to us, to be with us, to pursue us, to chase after us because he loves us. So that is what we see so importantly at the beginning of this, that the disciples are having Jesus reveal himself once again to, uh, to him. And one of the questions that comes up is, are the disciples doing something bad? Are they running from Jesus? And that's why he's pursuing them, because he's fishing. They're fishing, right? That's what it says. Simon Peter says, I'm going to go fishing in verse 3. And the disciples are like, I'll, I'll go with you too. That sounds like a good idea. That sounds like folk boys from Alabama that just need a break. What are we going to do today? I don't know. Let's go fishing. Sounds good. I'm not from Alabama, so no problem saying this. I've never fished. But I'm sure it's very relaxing. That's what my brother-in-law tells me. But some commentators wonder, are the disciples doing something wrong here? And I actually had never thought about that, right? Are they, you know, not being good disciples? I mean, they've seen Jesus raised from the dead, so shouldn't they be out telling everybody about that? What are, they, are they wasting their time? One commentator goes so far as to say they're apostatizing in this passage. I don't think that. That's a bit harsh. Another commentator, I think, comes a bit closer to the truth and points out the fact that they need to eat. Right? There are no churches for them to receive a call to to go and start ministering and setting up evangelism efforts. They're the first Christians. It's 12 guys, 11 guys, not a lot of other people, and they still need to eat. So they go fishing. But it's also important to remember that they're probably not running because at the end of Mark's gospel, what does Jesus say to Mary? Go and tell the disciples, especially Peter, to go to Galilee, and I will meet them there. So I think it's natural that they're being obedient to Jesus' scripture, or to Jesus' command, and they go to Galilee. And what would be more natural to these guys than, let's go fishing again and wait to see if Jesus pursues us, if Jesus is faithful to what he said he was going to do. And he shows up. He is the God who not only pursues, but he guides them during a time where, once again, they're floundering without him. Look at me with, uh, at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. Just a, a couple things. If you remember our Easter sermon, we talked about the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to two disciples, and it says that Jesus hid his identity from them. We don't have that in the text. This isn't Jesus um, not allowing them to recognize him. It's the fact that it's early in the morning. These guys are on a boat, a little bit, you know, off the shore in a lake, and they look out and they see, you know, what every sports fisherman probably wants to see, some anonymous Joe Schmo giving them advice or almost egging them on about, did you catch anything? And even the language of Jesus' question is less of, you know, uh, did you act, you know, did you catch something? But it's assuming that it's a negative response. It's almost like he says, you haven't caught anything, have you? 
I know you're not having a good night fishing. So what does he do? He offers unsolicited advice. Again, what every fisherman probably wants. Or in this case, uh, it's, this just seems really realistic that you're struggling at something and somebody comes along and says, have you tried this? How about that? And it's always pointless or kind of really obvious advice. When I was reading this, I thought of my, my dad has his pilot's license and he always wanted me to fly with him and I always said no. And he finally convinced me one day and we fly out from Poughkeepsie to Albany. It's a really easy flight. And as we're land, about to land in Albany, I hear uh, you know, some words that did not sit well with me. And he said, uh-oh. I said, what's uh-oh? And he goes, um, I think something's wrong. And the master alarm starts going off. And I'm like, that can't be good. And he goes, no, no, it's not good. The good thing is we probably won't crash that hard. So his engine was a prop plane. It had somehow kind of cut off and it was cutting back on, but we were going kind of slow and gliding in and the landing was pretty rough, but, but we land and he's like, Hey, we did it. And as we pull in, I'm, you know, sweating and terrified and paler than I usually am. And we get out of the, the plane and all of a sudden, all the old timers are there. All the guys who probably can't fly anymore, but they sit around the hangar and, you know, help out with things. They all come running up and, you know, saw your landing. That was pretty rough. You know, you sure it wasn't, you flooded the engine. You sure it wasn't this, you sure it wasn't that. My dad's just being inundated with all this probably well-meant, but not helpful information. So after he listens to several different ideas about what was wrong, he gets in the plane, takes out, I don't know if it was a manual for the plane or if it was some type of handbook he had for you know, pilot school or whatever, but he found what he was looking for, the directions of what to do in the exact situation we were just in, and he follows the book and the engine kicks on, the props go, and we can just fly. He was very shaken and I was very shaken, so I didn't entirely enjoy my flight back. I was waiting for the master alarm to kick back on, but he just followed the truth. He followed the book that told him exactly what he needed to do and not heed all the other input. And so that's kind of what you would expect from these disciples, right? They have been laboring all night and this guy shows up and he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. I can almost envision Peter saying like, I never thought to throw the net on the other side, thank you. But the astounding thing, as one commentator put it, was they actually listen, right? They had no reason, it's, they, they wouldn't be disobedient, they didn't know this person was Jesus. And it's probably a sign of how tired they were and exhausted that they decide to, you know what, fine, we're just gonna throw this net over and see what happens. And what happens? They cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. In a culture that's rich in symbolism, we need to slow down and appreciate what is happening here. This has all happened historically, but as usual with Jesus, Jesus, there's something deeper going on. There's something below the surface. What is he preparing them for? They have a mission to go out and preach the gospel. Will they be able to do that with their own power? Can you do that with your own power, with your own strength, with your own articulation or intellect? No. They need Christ to guide them, to reveal to them those who are, you know, out there to hear the gospel. Jesus calls them, and what does he says? I will make you fishers of men. 
And there's an interesting parallel here between this incident and in Luke 5 when the same thing happens except Jesus is with them on the boat and they're fishing. They don't catch anything. Jesus says, throw the net on the right side of the boat and they haul up so many fish that their nets actually begin to tear and break. But this time, the nets aren't tearing. If we can go a little bit deeper into the symbolism, we can see that the nets of the gospel are not going to lose the fishes that Jesus provides to the disciples. The disciples, as they preach, all those who hear uh, and are elected by faith, they're going to be drawn to Christ. And that's what we see in Acts 2. As many as were called to faith believed. Jesus is teaching them that if they're going to be fulfilling this mission, they need him with them. And also, he's going to supply those that he's calling. Their efforts, they, they need to go to work, but they can rest that Christ is calling all these fishes into the gospel net to be brought in to fellowship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We need Christ's power and the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. And that's what is happening here in a very visual way. It's teaching them their dependence on Christ. But he's not just going to reveal himself. He's not just going to pursue them or um, guide them. He's going to serve them. So look at me again in verses 7 through 8. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Notice how the beloved disciple and Peter respond. As usual, Peter is impulsive, right? He's got his buddy, who's the beloved disciple is most likely the author of the uh, Gospel of John, the author of the Epistles of John, the, uh, the Revelator, but he's most likely John, and he says, it's the Lord. And Peter wastes no time, right? He dives into the water, head first to meet his Savior. And if you thought, like I did, that it's kind of weird that he puts on clothes to jump into the water, um, I had to read that a few times, and I went to, you know, thank God for commentaries because I didn't, that doesn't make sense to me. But he says that he was stripped for work. So there's two options. He was either completely naked while working in the night, which is possible but not likely. It was a bit warmer there during that time of the year. Or his outer garment was draped around his legs. He was working. He had basically his shirt off. And if he had jumped into the water, it would have been dragging on him as he's trying to move his legs. So he probably ties it similar to, you know, gird up your loins uh, language that we have in the Old Testament and in Paul. So he usually he's probably just tying something to him and jumping in so that he can more easily swim to his Savior. This is so rich in detail and something that we so expect from Peter. He is constantly impulsive. He is constantly shooting from the hip. And he just hears from his friend John that that's the Lord. And what does he do? He, he's, <laughs> if you remember, in John's gospel, Peter and the beloved disciple are sprinting to the tomb when they hear that Jesus is raised from the dead. And in John's gospel, who gets there first? You think it's going to be Peter, and then it says... And the one whom Jesus loved passes Peter and gets to the tomb first. And so tying up loose ends, you could almost see John maybe reflecting, ah, that maybe sheds Peter in a, in a rough light. Peter did jump off a boat and just start swimming to meet our Lord and Savior. So 
I'll include that. I pointed out it was the Lord, but man, he just dived in head first. Well, left us to, you know, have to haul in the rest of the fish and deal with all the ropes and turning the boat around to get in. I immediately thought of uh, the scene in Forrest Gump. It's one of my favorite movies. But Forrest Gump is, you know, now a shrimp boat captain, and he's been writing letters to his dear leader, Lieutenant Dan, to come and be a shrimp boat captain with him. They'll split everything. And Forrest is coming in one day, and on the dock is Lieutenant Dan. And Forrest is so excited, and he starts waving and hollering, Lieutenant Dan! And there's nobody on the boat with him. But Forrest is so excited to see his leader, his lieutenant, that he jumps off the boat and swims to shore completely clothed and gets up onto the dock and he's panting and huffing. He's like, Lieutenant Dan, you came and he's so happy. And they have a little conversation and they agree, you know, he's going to be a shrimp boat captain with, with Forrest and this and that. And then in the background, the boat was left to its own devices. So it crashes into a dock and Forrest looks at Lieutenant Dan and says, you know, that's my boat. But that was like Peter. He was so excited to see his leader that he had to just dive in head first. And what does he see when he gets there? Look at me, uh, look with me at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. It can't be a fishing story unless these fish are large and a huge catch, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Can you hear the fire crackling? Can you smell it? Can you taste the saltiness in the air with the way John is so paying, paying so close attention to the details of this story. And think about it, Jesus is now resurrected, right? He has got the glorified body. He is appearing here and disappearing there. And I mean, he's glorified. And what is he doing? He's serving. He's still showing humility. He washed the disciples' feet during his earthly ministry right before he knew they were all going to abandon him, right before Peter denies that he has anything to do with him, even cursing about it. But he knows their hearts and bodies need him now. And does he scold them? Right? He never tells Peter, I told you you were going to abandon me. He never says, why did you all run away from me? His mercy is too great for vindictiveness, so he feeds them. He knows they're weary from a night of unproductive fishing. He knows they're tired of doubts that they're still having. Maybe they're afraid about what they're being called to do by Jesus. So, because everything is different now. After Emmaus, Jesus appeared to them, and he was the one who ate to calm their minds and build their faith. That's, that happens in the other part of Luke 24. Jesus appears to them, and they're scared. The language says that they thought it was a ghost. And so what does Jesus do? He says, give me something to eat because ghosts can't eat. Ghosts can't take food. And Jesus takes and eats so that they would be calmed. They would be comforted knowing that what's happening here is not a ghost. It's not a spirit. It's Jesus glorified in a physical, renewed body. So now again, he needs to strengthen their faith by giving them something of sustenance, something they need. And it's such a beautiful picture of the God we serve, that he serves us. He feeds us. He cares for us. His eye is on the sparrow because he cares for us.
This was such a moving uh, depiction of God's mercy and service that it inspired C.S. Lewis in his conclusion to the voyage of the Dawn Treader. In the very end of the book, as Peter, or sorry, uh, Lucy and Edmund and Reepicheep are making their way uh, to Aslan's country, they stop at a little island right at the brink of Aslan's country. As they come ashore, Lewis writes this, between them and the foot of the sky, there was something so white on the green grass that even with their eagle's eyes, they could hardly look at it. They came on and saw that it was a lamb. Come and have breakfast, said the lamb in its sweet, milky voice. Then they noticed for the first time that there was a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it. They sat down and ate the fish, hungry now for the first time for many days, and it was the most delicious food they had ever tasted. Christ knew that his disciples were weary and they needed to be fed. I'm confident that it was probably one of the most delicious meals they ever tasted because it was a meal prepared for grace. A meal, as we'll see next time, prepared for forgiveness, for reconciliation. So, are you weary today? God is near to you and is ready to comfort you. Are you scared today? Are you anxious? He is near to comfort you. Are you worried about tomorrow? He is near to comfort you. Are you ashamed of your sins? Are you thinking that what you have done is too great for God to forgive or pursue or guide or serve you? He has prepared a table for you. You cannot outsin his mercy. You cannot outrun the God who pursues. One Christian author called Jesus the hound of heaven because he pursues those he calls and he will chase after them. So will you respond to the Savior's call from the shore? Remember, these men had no reason to listen to an anonymous guy on the beach, but maybe something that had happened earlier in their lives at another evening of fishing years back reminded them about Jesus. And we often wish that God would speak to us like Moses, face to face, or lighting a tree on fire that's also not being consumed by fire. That would be so easy. We'd be like, oh, clearly this is from the Lord. I should follow this direction and not that. But we do have that in, in the scriptures. We have that in the word of God. All of this business at the beach, this whole scene is meant to build the disciples' faith. The application of this passage is to comfort us in our beliefs, to comfort us in our insecurities or worries about who God is and what he does. This teaches us the character of God. Will we respond to that? Will we believe it? Will we trust that the Lord is ready and willing to not only forgive us, but to care for our physical needs. Our faith is indeed weak, but Christ is greater than our doubts and is ready to give us the faith that we need. And he gives it to us. I really wish we had been celebrating the Lord's Supper, but he gives it to us at his table where he welcomes all the wretched and poor sinners to come and feast on him and have strength through faith in him. Let's pray. Most gracious and loving God, thank you for preparing means of grace for us to know you deeper, to be assured of your forgiveness, to be assured that we are yours. You give it to us in your word. You give it to us in baptism. You give it to us in the Lord's Supper. You gave it to your disciples in bread and fish, a meal to comfort and strengthen weary minds and bodies and souls. 
And we are thankful that you continue to do that for all of us here, that when we are weary, you're there. When we are having doubts, you are there. You are greater than them, that you're patient with us. You're long-suffering and slow to anger, and we, I don't think we can ever be as thankful as we should be for that. Be with us now as we go out on the rest of this Lord's Day. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Having heard from the Word of God, let's respond by continuing to praise Him by the singing of Hymn 650. If you are able, please stand. I will sing of my Redeemer. <laughs>